Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. And we are excited to be joined today by Joe Curry, Head of Data Science for Apollo 1971. Joe, welcome to the Instructor on Life podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Chris. Hey. We're really excited to talk to you. Um, could you maybe start off by explaining uh, what Apollo 1971 is and then a little bit more about your role uh, within that? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Apollo Syndicate 1971, we are a syndicate within the Apollo Group. Um, so Apollo Group um, was founded, I believe, in 2009. Um, and we have a number of syndicates um, now within the group. Um, and we are a Lloyd's Market insurer. So Apollo Syndicate 1971 specifically um, became its own syndicate, I believe, in 2021. And we focus um, primarily on insuring non-Lloyd's traditional uh, class of business. We focus on insuring um, sort of future of mobility. Um, so we set up working in uh, the sharing economy space. Um, so working with some of your, your large kind of tech clients um, within the States. And we've uh, expanded to kind of focus on innovative uses and future of mobility. So um, we're sort of looking at in interesting things like autonomous vehicles. And so my role within the company is head of data science. So I set up a data science team, a data science function about four years ago when I joined. Um, and as a, as, a, as a head of data science, I think everybody has their own kind of definitions of what they think a, a data scientist does and what a data science team does. Um, but within the, within the team, we're entirely embedded um, within the syndicate. So we work very closely with our underwriters and our actuaries and directly with clients and brokers. Um, and kind of the role of our team is to engage with clients in terms of what data is going to be valuable for us in terms of pricing and assessing risk, um, working on the best ways to kind of transfer that data, feeding back data insights and data analytics, um, building some engineering pipelines, doing a lot of automation and um, some of what you would probably call true data science, which I think is what everybody thinks of when you say data science, which is, you know, kind of building your predictive models and really trying to trying to innovate and try and do things that, um, you know, work with new technologies or things that we think haven't been done before or take, um, you know, aspects of kind of machine learning and new tech stacks from other industries and kind of apply them to, to, to insurance. Really cool. I um, when a lot of the guests that we have, um, if we do start talking about specific products and and needs in, in terms of underwriting claims or data, um, for the most part, we're talking to people who are working on what I'll I'll call quote unquote um, established products, right? What just future of mobility to me is just indicative of the fact that there's there's still a lot of exploration going on 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 what do those products actually cover. Um, and so really interested to understand from you, how do you go about building um, 
I guess, uh, a data repository for something that is is so new and is still developing in the greater tech world and then trying to have insurance catch up to it or, or stay in, you know, in step with it? Yeah, it's um, it's it's a challenge. Um, like, like you say, you know, if if we we build insurance products that have never existed before. And so how do you take something that's never been done and maybe data that doesn't exist? So I mentioned autonomous vehicles. Um, how do you build um, an insurance product off that and, you know, have enough comfort that you're pricing that? products effectively um so we are lucky and in in what we do in that we build really strong partnerships with our with our clients and with our brokers and our partners um and what we look to do is really knowledge share and share data um with clients obviously some of the some of the the, the tech clients that we deal with you know they have terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data of you know they've, they've, they collect every single movement from every single nanosecond of every single vehicle that they have deployed um, and what we try to do is inform from a risk perspective we might not have potentially the capability to understand and work with the levels of data that they're working with and build sort of the convoluted neural networks that they're building but what we do have is that sort of risk hat and that understanding to be able to understand what data they have, which is going to be valuable to inform um, inform risk and what we know from other lines of business and other kind of more traditional insurance products that we've that we've worked on and and really kind of collaborate on that. So so that's what we really try to do. We try to take learnings from maybe more of your traditional um, lines of business data that you know we have multiple years of data we've got the experience we know how it's going to play out um and then try to apply those learnings to to new clients and new customers and new innovative ways of doing things sounds like really fun stuff yeah. uh, i'm cur- i'm curious how your team interfaces with um say the actuarial teams at apollo <laughs> i a lot of what you're describing i would have generally assumed uh, traditionally would have gone to an actuarial role. So how do you interface with them? Yeah, I mean, we we work very closely with um, with the actuarial team. I'm, I actually sit within the actuarial function, so I'm not an actuary myself. I uh, I flunked out after one exam, but, um, you know, I, I, do, I do have that sort of history of working within pricing teams and working within actuarial teams. Um, my real interest and my focus is, you know, data coding. I'm a bit of a nerd. Like I love, I love tech. Um, and so we, we do work very closely together. So like you, you rightly point out the, that is um, in terms of coming up with sort of the price and assessing, you know, um, historical data, that is a very typical kind of actuarial function, I suppose, where we would come in would be working with the potential terabytes of data from, from our clients, integrating with sort of their tech stacks, understanding what additional insights we can bring beyond traditional actuarial techniques and feed that into the actuarial process. So we're not doing two separate jobs. We will work very closely with the actuaries. We will feed directly to the underwriters, but kind of the way the process works uh, within iBot certainly is, um, is that we every single account you'll have input from every single function and we'll all work together on all those accounts so we we complement each other i'd say 
but yeah, I love to get stuck into awesome. the, the coding and the, the nerdy stuff. That's yeah. It's fascinating to me that you're distinguishing yourself as nerdy versus the actuaries, but that's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, do I want to hit on something you just talked about? Uh, how when something comes in, everyone there is part of, is part of that process. Um, so when you think about you know current state or the future state of the future mobility products, right? What is what is a standard submission like intake process? include and where are some of the challenges that you see today uh, whether it's data related whether it's um uh just you know speed processing um yeah love your thoughts um so the i'd say the submission process is um i don't know how many sort of lawyers market insurers you've had on this podcast previously but i'd say it's very it's very typical it's um you know that there are a lot of challenges in terms of um, the quality of data, um, the amount of data, getting the right data, um, data cleanliness, um, speed of being able to turn around um, submissions, the amount of submissions that, that come in. Um, the submissions that we receive are, are, are very typical, I would say. Are they primarily still like like how are they coming in, Joe? Is like standard there? Is it is it email? Uh, is it is yeah. it through an automated? It's, it's mostly email. Yeah, okay. yeah, um, yeah. And so, I guess we Apollo are, I would say, genuinely um, an innovative company. Insurance, I don't think, as an industry moves particularly quick. And then you've got different layers within within the insurance industry, right? You've got um, sort of your personal lines where everything's kind of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was, everything was coming through a website. The, the data was already really structured. It was enriched. They were building machine learning models then. And you get to sort of the the commercial lines insurance where you have a little bit less data and then the specialty lines of insurance in kind of the Lloyd's market where you have very little data and it's it's another step behind each time and so you're starting to build kind of machine learning models now which actually they were probably doing 10 20 years ago in in the personal mind space um so data as a as a general rule as submissions email is by far the the most common um, way of doing things, but it's not it's not the best way of doing things. Um, we can automate certain processes, um, whether something comes in through um, somebody's email inbox, but again, um, that might not necessarily be the preferred way of doing things. I guess um, the issue that you have is if you're interacting with you know brokers and clients, you need to get everybody in the whole sort of supply chain on board if you're going to if you're going to kind of revolutionize that process. Um, so yeah, in long winded answer to your question, emails, but we try to be a little bit smarter, you know, kind of the triage and the automation, we're really working towards that. You're probably, you're never going to get rid of <laughs> emails. <Yeah. laughs> you know. It's the ultimate API. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, discussion um out there just about the future as your 
spending all your time on the future of mobility specifically, how will autonomous vehicles change? Um, how, how insurance carriers think about paying out claims? Like, you know, where does liability lie? Um, but there's also uh, with the ingestion of all this data, right, that you're getting real real time, I assume, updates from, from the vehicles or you've got like the, the information from the OEM that gives you more detailed information than you would have otherwise had. How do you how do you see the claims process transforming uh, with with the, the mobility products as they grow based more on autonomous vehicles? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, at the point of claim now, you you have so much information already, and sometimes, um, and we see this with a lot of our more sophisticated partners that you know you know a claim has happened before before a claim actually comes in. Um, yeah, so I think telematics, um, having that sort of automated first notice of loss is absolutely massive for for claims. And from an insurer's perspective, you know, you've got the efficiencies of, of first notice of loss, um, claims triage, putting your... your setting your kind of uh, claims handling authority almost as a, as a media point, it's beneficial to the customer. They're going to get, you know, payouts a lot quicker than, than they would have if you, if you've got to do a bit of a deep dive into every single claim and, you know, weed out fraudulent claims and, and, and actually find out the specific details of the claim. Um, so I think, yeah, this is, it is huge. And some of our, some of our partners in particular, um, have really built out quite sophisticated processes to to handle these claims. Um, from our perspective, we work a lot in in excess lines, and what we like to do is really get on top of um, large losses that are really going to impact us and impact our layer. And what we can do now is develop predictive tools to say, oh, you know what, this claims come in and it's really early stages, but already from the claims description, where it is, the details surrounding the circumstance of the claim, this is actually something that they need to notify their excess carrier or we need to we need to keep an eye on. And then we can really make that process a bit more efficient where we can we're not removing any humans from the loop, but we can just get the right experts looking at it at the at the right time. Um, so yeah, I think the more the more these things get integrated, the more the better it's going to be and the more impact it's going to have on claims. I think the challenge we face is um, a lot of the times this data is being collected and you've got kind of claims teams and risk management teams and there's still a bit of a disconnect there. You know, you've got um, particularly with, let's say, um, you know, a new mobility operator, they might have set up as a startup company and they're collecting loads and loads and loads of information. But it's not until they've reached a certain size that they've actually hired an internal risk manager and gone, right, we need to count off our insurance costs. And they've collected all this information, but they've not thought about linking it to their claims data and their incident data. And then you've got a bit of time where you need to play catch up and actually go, right, we need to map these two bits of data. And then we can actually fully assess what impact making certain risk-driven um, decisions is having on, on the actual value of your risk. Yeah, that makes sense. I uh, really interesting. I want to dig into two areas here: one on the claim side, and then one on the uh, the sort of underwriting side. 
So if, if the first notice of loss is automated to you, does that mean you're reaching out to get the rest of the information to them, like inverting the process? So I would say with our claims partners, that would that would be the case. So where we sit quite often in the insurance layer, that wouldn't necessarily be us personally. Okay. But yeah, that, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Um, and depending on the, the, the partners that we yeah, that we might work with, they they can see that something's come in and you know we work with some of the some of the largest um, ride sharing delivery companies and stuff like that in the US they can reach straight out and say oh I hear I hear you've had an accident is everything okay it allows them to get on top of sort of that claims process it brings down sort of your claims handling costs but it's also massively beneficial to the customer as well that's so cool I remember the first time I ever made an insurance claim for my car I was like <laughs> totally befuddled about what I was supposed to do so if someone could have just said hey you had a wreck give us this stuff and we'll sort it out for you. Man, that would have been amazing. Um, so that's really good, cool. Good use of the word befuddled there. Thank you. <laughs> showing, showing off my doctorate this morning. Uh, and then uh, on, the, on the underwriting side, one thing that we've heard over and over again is that the bottleneck that, that insurers, that carriers are, are trying to sort of break down right now is the process of getting structured data uh, out of these unstructured bundles of documents so that the clearance process com can complete faster and then the underwriter can take over. Um, where are you seeing automation and particularly like artificial intelligence driven automation um, having wins there? Moved on to large language models already. Um, yep. It took us longer than normal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, there are so many use cases for it. Doesn't actually not just large language models, you know, standard language models is I guess they're called now, um, but you know other other AI tools that exist. Um, the the value of it is huge. You know, just from I mean we talked about claims, but underwriting as well. There are so many so many huge documents as you as you mentioned that you know just from a, a reporting perspective or just building tools for underwriters where they're interacting with brokers that have X, Y, and Z account, just being able to extract certain information from slips that I can say, oh, here's all of the information from every single slip for this particular broker is like is a is a massive advantage and massive time saver. That would have taken, you know, a UA a couple of days to do and their time is now freed up to do something else. Um, so there's so much in the kind of standard manual day-to-day -day tasks that can be automated um, from extracting key bits of data from submissions. One of the things that we find massively in our team is um, historical claims data where we've not been on an account. And you know, you you receive data in all sorts of different formats and it's so informative as to the future performance of an account. But it could be, you know, embedded in a PDF in like in page 10 of this report. And how do I do I give that to someone and get them to scroll through and then type everything out? And and to be honest, like that's what used to happen. Oh yeah. Um, but now, yeah, there are there are so many tools that exist actually outside of large language models that can already do that in in such an efficient way. I feel like for the most part, those kind of manual tasks that can be automated. I think can be automated with what you would say were existing tools more than two years ago with 
traditional kind of AI tools and actually just some like rule-based automation and standard script building, I think. But as we've mentioned it, there is then so much more that you can do with with large language models on top of that, which you know yeah. in actually kind of being able to interpret the the context of the data and without really knowing what you want to pull from a slip slip or a claims adjuster's report, but being able to get the machine to pull out relevant data and all you have to do is give it the term relevant. That that kind of thing there's huge potential. Huge potential there as well. You're singing my song. I want to let's come back to that in a minute and we'll really drill it. <laughs> sure. Joe, when, when you're think, uh, agree with every, everything that, that you, you just said, um, when I think about applying AI capabilities on top of or just to automate or better streamline the, the existing underwriting or claims processes that exist, right? Um, you think about the fact that there's always this, this large, uh, set of data of historical uh, decisions that have been made that 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 model can can leverage when you're when you're establishing a new product where uh, you know the underwriting process is new there's still a lot of underwriting guidelines to be developed right like you're you're looking at everything because uh, in more detail, maybe because you're not used to seeing that that type of, of data come through a submission or there's something new. And then even on the claim side, it's it's a new type of claim or there's new factors. How do you think about applying AI? Uh, like what are the differences to, to you or the challenges in applying AI to, to a process that it, for a product that is so new or is, is so nascent and still kind of being figured out even by by the underwriters who are experts sure. in that space? That, that isn't established and you don't have a huge amount of historical data for. Exactly. Um, yeah, it, it's a challenge, you know, like data scientists, data people, we would love a, you know, a structured data set which gives you exactly what you're trying to predict in your output that's 100% accurate and you can build a, a really easy model. And I spend all of my time just going through all the different types of models and looking at which one's the most predictive. But in reality, the the job is 95 percent i'm going to say data cleansing and finding that data and getting it sort of structured in a, in a particular way where we don't have historical data i think um that's where really embedding within other teams and relying on expert judgment actually comes in like i don't think we're kind of um arrogant enough as a as a data science community to say you know we we think the data says this and therefore this, and this is the answer. Like it's always been the case in, in insurance that, you know, you might build a really predictive model for um, pricing uh, an auto risk and you go, oh man, I don't know why um, diesel cars are such a high windscreen risk compared to petrol cars. It doesn't make any sense to me, but my model says so, so I'm just going to include it. But if you talk to an underwriter, they'll go, oh, yeah, it's because they do way more motorway driving and you're more likely to get a pebble hit your, hit your windscreen. And and underwriters have this expert knowledge about the industry that, that I don't have and my team doesn't have. So that's where we would really look to collaborate. So our first version of a, of a kind of a large loss model when we're looking at claims, it doesn't come from loads of historical data that we're trying to get in the right format or that we don't necessarily have. The version one is going to be, okay, well, we've got some expert claim adjusters here that have worked on this for the last 20 years. You tell me what you think is really important. And then we create kind of a baseline of version one. And then as the data comes through, we then 
kind of iterate through and we build a version two and we say, right, we think this is more predictive because of this. Maybe you've overrated this factor. What do you think about that? And it's, it's all a collaborative process. I don't think we would ever personally um, and the way that we're embedded within the team ever just focus entirely on what we think because the data says so we're very collaborative in that sense that's interesting it, and it, it all really resonates back in my days as a data science lead we did a project where we we're trying to adjust some pricing models in the derivative space and um, the database holding those prices was just a mess there were there were no validations. Everything was all over the place, and so we used NLP tools to go back to the original source documents and just rebuild the thing because that was a cleaner pipeline for the data. So I, as I that all of that is a lead up to a question. Uh, the question is, as you're seeing AI and automation becoming a part of intake processes for claims and underwriting, are you seeing cleaner data, or has that not caught on mm. yet? Um, that's a good question. I think um, it, cleaner in the sense that it looks cleaner on, on face value. It looks uh, like more structured, but maybe the fallibility of, X, um, of AI models is that um, maybe sort of the quality and the, the, the trust issues that people might um, sort of have around them. Um, so I feel like the the um, kind of industry and the topic of AI is moving. It's moving so quick. We, you know, we're an innovative insurer, but we are still an insurer. So I want to say, you know, <laughs> we, 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 we haven't adapted to the use of AI maybe as quick as uh, some of your massive tech companies. But um, yeah, I do think as a, as a general rule that as long as you're applying it in the right way, then yeah, absolutely. And it, to be honest, it's the same with any, um, any technique that isn't isn't AI is is the application of it, right? Yeah. So it's not just producing dirty data faster, is what you're saying. No, I mean, maybe we've tested some things that have done that. We've had some very interesting examples of uh, trying to adapt early versions of large language models and uh, build certain things ourselves internally, and. Um, some of the output of that has been absolutely hilarious. Um, it's come up, it, they've come up with some absolutely crappy things. But obviously, you know, we've tested things, so that certain things don't work, and we're not we're not going to use that. So, in terms of actually figuring out the right way to to use AI and new tools, um, I wouldn't be doing my job well if it didn't give better data because we we wouldn't, yeah. we wouldn't be using it. Yeah, you might not be doing your job at all. <laughs> that's true i uh i heard i read a great quote the other day um attributed to Corey schaefer that ai isn't going to replace developers but developers that use ai will replace developers that don't and i i couldn't i couldn't agree with that more i i don't i don't think it's going to replace people i think i'll still be doing my job but i think i'll be doing it better because i'm because i'm using ai yeah, I love that. Uh, so let's get starting to talk about tools. What is the tool stack that your team uses? What are, what are they into every day? Um, we we we're, we're big on our Python development. Okay. In my team. Yep. Um, and uh, we're we're big on Microsoft tools as well. So that's our, our, our tech stack of choice. Um, 
there's a lot of um as with probably every company we're doing a lot of uh, you know transformation projects and and you know figuring out new tools for for pricing and and data um but for the most part um we're utilizing i'd say the microsoft stack for um ai and cognitive services and um kind of our data infrastructure and python as a general day-to-day to kind of tie everything together and scripting and coding that kind of thing plus you know excel can't get away from it can we no that's not no. <laughs> <laughs> or banking or anything yeah. else really anything i'll be there forever yeah no that that stack sounds like the right stack to me and i can't believe i 10 years ago i would never have said this but i'm a huge fan of what microsoft is doing in this space i think they're doing awesome stuff i want to i want to start to get into the large language model discussion i think i want to get your reaction to this I think the industry, maybe all industries, are thinking about the distinction the wrong way, large language model versus small or standard language model. I think that the distinction should really be based on task, like discriminative or generative applications. And because people are distinguishing based on size, I think people are trying to use the wrong tools for the wrong things. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that I think that makes sense. I completely agree. I think... There are, there's the right tools for the for the right jobs, and large language models are great, and they you know they came with a lot of furore and you know a lot of hype, and we we've got to that to that point um, where everyone's so super hyped about it. Maybe maybe the hype's dropping off a little bit. Um, there are uses for large language models. For instance, um, I think anything that it's it's going to make my life easier and it's going to be more efficient for me to use a a general generative ai large language model um uh where it's not going to be a valuable use of my time to train a specific model for a specific purpose so Mm. i'm thinking things like uh you know uh, my day-to-day life as changed on a, on a work basis using large language models you know it's it it's, it's like having extra people in your team it, it writes code so much quicker and yeah. i can then peer review that code like and and that's essentially what i would use it for um but if we're looking at specific tasks that um you know are going to be repeatable and you really want a solid um kind of uh uh audit trail almost and you need to know exactly what um uh language model you've used and you're going to continue to use it and i'm thinking something like maybe we've built a specific model ourselves for looking at sentiment that we're applying to a specific use case then i think actually maybe using a a large language model isn't necessarily the the best thing to do in 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 that case Um, i think using large large language models there's Given what is available now, it's just so easy. Yep. That that that's the that's the thing, really. It's just if you can adapt your your use case to be able to use it, it it's it, the temptation is there because it, it's just so easy to do it. Yeah, let's talk about that temptation because that is a hot topic <laughs> in my world. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, like we we've had a lot of conversations with folks where, um, well, actually, let me rewind to the past. So when the standard language models came out, 
uh, Indico had a lot of conversations where the data science team, your counterparts, my former counterparts would jump in and say, oh, we can just get the weights for that model. We'll build the automation. And the data science team was forgetting that, like, you know, there's a whole lot of user experience that goes into gathering training data. And the data science team didn't really want to, they don't want to write JavaScript. I don't want to write JavaScript. <laughs> um, so building a user interface where the business owner and uh, the folks in the automation side can work together, really important. So I'm having flashbacks to that nowadays where we'll be talking to a prospect and they'll be like, oh, we don't need your platform that has standard language models and large language models. We'll just GPT the thing ourselves, right? And I think, one, I don't think people fully understand, again, like I said, the right uses of these models. And two, I don't think they understand both the limitations of the large language model and the capabilities of the standard language model. And I'm I'm curious, you know, are you seeing the same thing internally at Apollo where it's like, oh, we don't have to talk to Joe. We, we'll just get a GPT API key and we're good. I think, I think we're... I think we're good within Apollo, as in okay. we, um, you know, we've got a great IT central data team, and I think people listen to experts, and so you know, a, a massive amount of work at the moment is going into understanding what the limitations are, what the issues are, what the you know potential threats are concerning large language models, and you know, from data security like that's a massive thing you can't just you know you can't just give free reign to to people to just shove whatever you want into a large language model like uh, there are rules against this like one we've got our own ip but two we've there's actual you know laws that says you can't just share certain certain bits of data um and so there's been an educational piece around that and you know we've got like sort of a, a usage policy in general internally um but then what we're really building out is that kind of um educational piece around and governance piece around how do we what is the right way to use large language models and for what purpose um for instance like i mentioned before you can't you can't assume um validity of the output um of, of a large language model you, ju you just can't but that's probably also true of a junior member of staff. Like I would, I would, you know, I wouldn't give an analyst on day one a task. They give me the output, and I just, you know, present it to the board. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And it's similar, I think, with a large language model, that you need to be able to have that human kind of that pair of eyes over it and using it for for any task that the you know that you might hand off to an analyst, and then you're going to peer review. I think that's kind of a really good example of where where it's valuable and where it's useful but i think probably as an organization we'll you know the the masses that just are using chat gpt i think everybody in the company probably now is using chat gpt in some way shape or form um, and most people in most workplaces are doing exactly the same thing and um, really trying to educate them on on what happens if you put this data in here and just assume that um their output is going to be correct what happens if you ask it about a a you know, uh, a regulation um, in in insurance, and you know, it helps us nonsense, and and probably try and show some examples of where where this has actually happened. And you can't, you know, you can't take anything as given. I think I think it's a lot easier to use large language models internally. So when I'm like, you know, I'm writing code, and you know, I'll take a snippet from it, take that, but then I'll adapt it to my own person, per uh, my own 
personal use cases. Yep. Um, like that's a that's a great way to use it. But when you're something that you really need to have a huge amount of trust in, and a person's been removed from that from that kind of pipeline, that's where I think that's where the you know the trickiness comes in. You know, large language models that are being used as chatbots and um, you know, getting them to auto respond to to brokers. It's a matter of time before something really bad comes out, <laughs> comes out of it, and it, it, you know it says something that it shouldn't have, or you know writes a slip with a really you know incorrect terming if you're not glancing over it. Yeah, Joe, I think you've hit on on something really important that I think uh, Chris and I have talked a lot about just be- between us and and have have addressed with with other folks that have been on the podcast as well is just um, what are the regulations and the compliance protocols that come into place when when you start using AI internally, right, for different use cases for different workflows, um, and and just in my experience in my role, um, a lot of the I'll call it concerns, but the things that we hear in conversation about carriers looking to partner with vendors that bring AI solutions um, is that there is that concern about data privacy, the data exchange, and then the decision-making that, that happens as, as part of, of those workflows, um, you know, being combined when, when you're, what, what, what are you thinking about when you think about the, the regulatory landscape and, and how that's progressing as it relates to the speed at which AI uh, and and you know chat gpt specifically has has um democratized the use of of data so much across you know insurance and outside um that's one big question that i'm sure uh that is a, is, that is a very big you, question yeah. i'm not i'm not sure regulation is uh, is really within my wheelhouse um but what i i think what i will say is people are people are going to use it and you can't stop them and people are using it and they can't be stopped um, even people, you know, even companies that are banning ChatGPT, people are still using ChatGPT. You know, they've got their yeah. personal accounts or whatever. And, and actually, in a sense, you're you, you're just increasing risk. You know, people go and log on using their personal account and start using company data in there. Um, we have uh, internally um, a compliance team and the exec that are taking this very seriously. We very early stages, very early on, um, created a usage policy in terms of we're not using um, any IP or public data or, or company data. You can't do that. These are some issues. We're not going to ban people from using ChatGPT because that's just probably going to make things worse. Um, but we are looking at, like you say, um, actual kind of private connections and internal solutions in, in that space. And I think data privacy is yeah is a really big one that we have to kind of make sure that any data that somebody puts into a into a large language model isn't going to be publicly available. Like we we absolutely have to do that, and the only way that we're going to um, get that confidence is is by setting up a, a private connection with it with you know, OpenAI, Microsoft, AWS, or, or any of the other um, kind of you know, big tech companies. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the I think the, regu- the regulation space is probably a, a question a little, a little bit, um, something like kind of on a, on a global level or like on a national level. I think the topic is huge. I th- honestly, I think that probably the, the biggest growing industry is going to be um, AI regulation and compliance. It's going to be, it's going to take off. It's going to be massive um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's such a complex thing. I don't think anybody really sort of 
has the answer. You know, there's so many lawsuits and stuff going on about just how the models have been trained. And as soon as they, and they have started, you know, recreating, um, recreating things that are uh, ominously similar to copyrighted pieces of work and, and yeah. stuff like that. It's, it's a super, super complex um, topic. It's fascinating. Um, but yeah, from, from my perspective, all we, I think, can do is try to be as secure over our own data, be as clear as with our own usage policies as we possibly can, and educate in terms of the usefulness and actually the pitfalls of LLMs. What, what do you see as the, um, as this regulation evolves, what do you see as the potential worst case output? The worst case output? Uh, I should have said outcome, worst case outcome for regulation. Um, as in regulation that comes in, what would be the worst case from, from my perspective or just... Yeah, yeah, for a practitioner. Not, not kind of like just a dystopian nightmare. What's the worst case that could possibly happen with... No, I want people to keep listening to this. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't... I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm just too uh, you know, inherently an optimist. I'm not. I'm not thinking about the worst case outcome. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really, I really don't know what um, it is. It's, it is just. It is just such a big topic. Um, what are your thoughts on the worst case outcome? Oh man, great question. Because uh, I've spent way too much time thinking about this, I, <laughs> I, I worry. So you've got OpenAI, and I would say somewhere down here you've got Google, and then AWS. Right. This is my opinion, not mm-hmm. not the words of Indico Data, just one man's opinion. You've got AWS somewhere lagging behind. Um, although I do love the stuff that they're doing with Anthropic. Anthropic's a great company. Um, but it's really it's really a three horse race effectively mm-hmm. right and um the last historical example i can think of that was like this is like nuclear power and nuclear power is now regulated like a utility uh which is a miserable way to regulate a really powerful powerful technology except when it's a potentially very dangerous technology and so i worry that you have these sort of three big names get ensconced in that regulatory framework and it just destroys innovation um, for the rest of the industry. And so I, I really I keep my eyes on what people are doing with the small language models. You can fit on you know a single card, and you could run it yourself, and you could do your own experiments. Um, mm-hmm. But they're way behind in capabilities right now. So anyway, that's my answer. It becomes a utility. I, I think that's that would be a terrible outcome. Yeah, I, yeah, I I tend to agree with that. That kind of private versus versus public and the and depending on how far it goes as well you know like what we've went from in the space of a year gpt 3 3.5 to 4 and the capability levels are increasing and increasing and you've got essentially one company invested in that but then a couple of other companies like you say that are really heavily invested in this technology at, at, yeah at what point do they are they just so powerful? They've got like the tool that every single person then becomes entirely reliant on in their yeah. um, in their workplace. Um, 
yeah, I don't think that would be a, a nice situation to be in and the whole open source and, you know, um, contributors from, from the community. But yeah. then also, yeah, like, I guess the kind of the point of this question is regulation because actually just, you know, there's nuclear power is regulated like, you know, like a utility, but it's because you can't just put it in everyone's hands, you know? Right. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential, you know, bad use cases for AI, and we, we're seeing them already. Um, there's how can you how can you tell something that's AI and something that isn't? Yeah, it's it's really difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. The, the, the image creation ones have got insane. <laughs> This took yeah. a really cheery turn. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Michelle. Yeah, <laughs> no. Anytime we start talking about regulation, it goes this way. I wonder, yeah. Michelle, does that does my dystopian view resonate with you in terms of what it would do to innovation and in the venture market with AI? Um, it, it does. I think you, you probably definitely have spent a little bit more time thinking about it from from that perspective than 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 I have. I think. Um, I agree with you that there's really those those three large players. The the de- the conversation and the debate or discussion rather that that we continue to have is um, what ultimately wins out. And I I have a, yeah. an opinion on it that I I, I won't necessarily share, but I, it aligns kind of with with what you framed. Of there's the large incumbents that are providing these solutions as part of like a larger tech stack that you can just. Um, have at your fingertips because you're already using those platforms or there's the the newer you know i'll call them startup solutions that are bringing ai that are maybe more point solutions um those that maybe aren't that are much more specific you can think about as a feature solution as opposed to an own standalone large large business and so um there what you've talked about gets back to like who wins out there, and if it really is the three large incumbents like winning out, and everything else gets gets eaten up by that, then you do have some of that. How is it going to be governed? Um, and so, you know, eventually my discussion gets to the point that you made, but I think I'm I'm still a little bit more in the trying to explore all of the different options um, that we see day to day. But I think it it leads to, um, you know, I I still think and we talked about this on a few episodes. What's so different about Gen AI in the, this hype cycle on it is that in the past, AI and machine learning, everything that was all part of like the data science actuary group that like you didn't touch it, you didn't know about it, you didn't understand it unless you were working in it day to day. And chat GPT has just democratized the access to it. And so you have people um, that can use it, that are excited to use it, rightfully so. But then, Jody, your point, you have people that are using it but don't understand the repercussions of using it, and that's where the true danger lies, whether they're doing it in their, like, you know, personal or their, um, you know, in their work life. Um, I think those are the, the considerations or the, the concerns that I got brought up when there's a new technology that kind of just sweeps the globe um, like this one did. <laughs> All right, let me let me try to make this more cheerful as we end. Uh, so, um, two two questions. Looking to the future, one short term horizon and one longer term horizon. Okay, short term horizon. Um, where do you think the near term future of uh, getting better with these models is? Would you say it's fine tuning them, or would you say it's uh, getting better at prompt and prompt chaining? 
yeah. Good question. Um, I think fine tuning them. If I had to pick one of okay. those, I think I I do honestly. Yeah, I think both super important. I think um, yeah, prompt engineering massive skill um, and big topic. I think the um, the way I see it is developing the the, the potential is developing the. Um, the real use cases for them and the the techs out there now you know it's as you say michelle been democratized everyone's kind of got access to it but then how do we really find what it's best for what are the best use cases for it and how do we fine tune it for specific use cases and you know you're going to have i think a million and one different um kind of technical applications that are powered by gpt and that have all been you know slightly fine-tuned to to specific use cases so yeah nice and then say five years from now i know that's an infinite amount of time in the space we all work in but uh how do you think how do you think the industry you're working in will have changed in five years based on all these tools and technologies that we've discussed today we'll all be sitting on a on a beach chris and we'll have oh, automated yeah. the whole thing best yeah. answer um <laughs> how, no i look it's so hard to say, you know, look at look at where we were a year ago. A yep. year, right? Five years? I don't know. We're, you know, I said before, we're we're an innovative insurer, but we're still insurer. Insurance isn't um renowned for you know moving that quickly overnight. But yeah, five years. I like to think that the game will completely change. Um the um, all underwriting will be augmented underwriting, as our as our CEO likes to likes to call it. Um, machines will be involved in most processes in some way, shape, or form, but um, people won't be removed. Realistically, I was I was only joking about being on the beach. Sorry, Chris. Um, no, it's yeah, okay. Then they won't. But um, the the tasks you that <laughs> me specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll still be thinking of um, new and innovative use cases for uh, automating and making people's jobs easier and really focusing on where humans can, can add value. Yeah, see, there you go. We ended on a hopeful note. Well done. There you go. <laughs> also, augmented underwriting. I'm probably stealing that. That's great. That's a, I, that's a great buzzword. I love it. Get, um, get our chief underwriting officer on your podcast. Here. All right, there Come you on. go. <laughs> okay, I, I'm up for that. Well, our guest today has been Joe Curry, who is the head of data science at Apollo 1971, and a wealth of information. Um, thanks, Joe. This has been great. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Be sure to write a review if you like what you hear.